breakout session is um, I've known all of his adult life uh, and uh, I remember him when he had this uh, hair that kind of came out like this and uh, he came to the church and uh, and he came through his his uh, father and mother who came through his grandmother, and his grandmother was one of the original founders of AA, and remembered Bill W. and Dr. Bob, and planted a stake in the ground for Jesus, and, um, and that passed on, and it passed on into that anointing, that generational anointing and I'm going to speak a little bit about tonight, is, is the fruit is this man of God. And he's broken through all that process, broken that in marriage and family, has two really uh, great kids. And he's been in my ministry now all of his adult life. So he's heard everything that I've ever had to say and, and more and is, and, and is now the dean, the dean of the Cathedral Church of the Intercessor. My kids, how long I've known him, my kids used to call him Uncle Brett. And then it had to turn to Deacon Brett, and then Father Brett. And uh, we're so attached that his son and my first granddaughter were actually born on the same day. We had a competition about who was going to be born born first. And so I want want you to welcome Father Brett Crompton. I'll have to go back the other. Yeah. So what's in my phone? Ready? 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 Since Father Rob cleared the room, now we have to kind of get everyone back. (laughs) Father, I thank you that you've given me um, this moment in time to share some things that you've put on my heart. Lord, you've gathered us because it's good for brothers and sisters to come and gather in your presence. Because there's something greater you want to do in us. So, Father, continue to speak and let our ears be open to hear the things that you want to speak Let our hearts be open to be transformed as a result of coming in your presence. And let this time be significant so that when we leave this place, we're different. And I ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's exciting to be here. Um, My first convocation in the CEC was 1996, Jacksonville, Florida. I was a little younger then. I didn't have any gray hair then. And uh, I was a young man in my uh, early 20s, very excited about the things the Lord was doing in my life and my wife's life. We were only married a few years at the time. And I really came to the convocation 
and got a glimpse of something mighty that the Lord was doing, this incredible, powerful thing that the Lord was doing, and my heart leapt as a result of it. There was just something bigger out there that God wanted me to be part of, and um, just beginning that desire or, or discerning that call that the Lord had on my life. And I remember being there, and all these bishops and clergy, and uh, there's just me, and I'm, I'm meeting these different men of God, and I thought to myself, wow, this is incredible. What an incredible experience to be around all these people in the same room that actually love the Lord. And if you would have asked me, here we are 22 years later, that I'd be a priest in the Charismatic Episcopal Church and speaking to you, that didn't seem possible. That didn't even seem like it was on the radar. But obviously it was something the Lord wanted to do. And I've been just having the privilege of being part of this communion since really we came in, I guess, 94 or so, somewhere around there, and watching what God has done um, uh, through in the valleys and up over the mountains and all the different uh, things that I've been able to experience and be part of. And it's been a joy. So I'm just excited to be here this morning. And I know that the Lord called us here for this time or such a time as this because only the Lord would call us to come meet in a casino in Las Vegas. So I figured that has to be God, because I would have not picked that. That would have not been my first choice. Working in recovery, I certainly wouldn't have picked Las Vegas and a casino for the church to meet in. But the Lord is doing things in our hearts, and we're gathered here for a purpose. I just want to start with kind of what the Lord's put on my heart since I've been here. And a little word I think he's put in there as we've been meeting and gathering on Tuesday On Tuesday during the worship, the Lord spoke to me in an audible voice. And he said, I see you. Just real simple. I see you. I heard your prayers. I know your faithfulness. I've heard your cry. I see you. Then he said yesterday that the CEC is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds that have been sown by faith. And you're not the seed, says the Lord. I'm the seed of faith that is sown in you. It's your faith that will move mountains, for nothing is impossible for you. And I was reminded of Mark chapter 4, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed sown into the ground. We sow and the Lord reaps. The kingdom is building, says the Lord, the family of God, through the adopted sons and the adopted daughters. The Lord says, I've not forgotten you. I see you, says the Lord. And I thought that was significant as we gather and how important that was that here we are, these seeds that he'd sown. And rising up, if you think about that, is when you sow a seed, you have nothing to do with it rising. You sow a seed and the Lord brings the sun, the Lord brings the rain, and he calls forth the growth. He brings that seed up and he, and, and, he, and he nurtures it and he brings it to fruition or its completion of what he wants to do. And here we are, this seed that he's called together, really this movement of God that he's called together. And the common thing that we all have is believing in faith of what he's called us to do. And that is by faith and that we wouldn't forget that. And what he's doing in all of us through faith, through family, through the church family as we gather The Lord gave me this word years ago, not the word I just spoke, but a word that he put in my heart, meeting with a bunch of crazy charismatics in the CEC. There are those in the CEC who are crazy charismatics. 
And they were praying for revival, that the Lord would send revival, and, and just asking and crying out. And I did the 24-hour prayer meetings, the all-night prayer meetings. I did the fasting and, and trying to twist the Lord's arm to convince Him to bring revival. I did everything that we were being called to do together. But really this prayer and this heart to see Him move in power and strength through revival. And the Lord spoke to me. And I was a young man in my early 20s and just learning how to hear from the Lord and then being bold enough to speak the Word of the Lord. And He spoke to me and He said that revival starts at home. Go home and love your families as Christ loved the church. Then you'll see revival. That that's where it begins. Lest we forget that that's the most important thing, what he's called us to do by loving one another. And of course, the enemy's plan would be to infiltrate the family. Because if he destroys the family, there's no hope for the church. Business giant Lee Iacocca once said, The only rock that stays steady, the only institution that works is the family. World leaders, government officials, and business giants No strong families equal strong economies. The key to a great country is strong families. But the family was not their design. It's the Lord's design. Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's design of creating man and woman in His image was that he would be a reflection of the Trinity. And that, that they would be the reflection of the Trinity and we'd be fruitful and we would subdue the earth. Pope Benedict said, the human family is, in a certain sense, the icon of the Trinity because of the love between its members and the fruitfulness of that love. Strong families in the Lord, bearing the image of Christ, will build strong churches and strong churches will change the culture. If we're going to build an army of God, it has to be done by building strong families one at a time. A strong family is one where Christ's love is the center, and there's mutual love for one another. As Christian parents, our responsibility is to love, nurture, teach our children. Love cannot be done in just word. Love has to be also done in action. What action do we take to show that love? How do we model that love? It's the church's job to equip the saints for the work of the kingdom. Amen? But it's the parents' job to equip the children. As pastors and leaders, we know this can't happen in an hour and a half on Sunday. It must happen at home. We must bring the kingdom of God into our homes and create what would be the new normal. Because bringing the kingdom of God into your home is not normal. Not by the culture standards. And let me explain to you what I grew up with. And I guess if I wander, I'm from New York. I don't stand in one place. This is going to be difficult. I'll hold on. See, I'm not normal because I wasn't born in a normal upbringing. I wasn't born in a normal situation. I was actually born in a rehab. In July... 19th, 1970, you can figure my birthday out. I was born in Santa Monica in a program called Synanon. My parents were there because my dad went there because of a drug and alcohol addiction. And he went to Vietnam, came back, and he was really messed up. And my grandmother, who was the, the, the prayer giant and the one 
who is in intercession constantly for the Lord to work and move and restore and rebuild the family and believing His purposes would be fulfilled. And all she had was prayer because the church rejected her. Her first husband was abusive. Uh, so much so, he, she left the family and left my dad and my uncle to uh, be put in foster care. But she had to get out of violence, so she left and then met another man, which was in the program, and um, he died of cancer, unfortunately, and then she met another man. But when you're married multiple times, the Roman Catholic Church will not let you back in without an annulment. So she didn't have a church, she didn't have anything but prayer, and she sought after the Lord through prayer that he would have a divine intervention in her family, that he could do it when no one else can. So she prayed. My dad came back, and he was uh, messed up after Vietnam. And uh, through that prayer, she heard this program called Synanon, and she found out how to get him there. And he was willing at that point, somehow, some miracle, she put money together to get him on a plane and fly him to California. So for all the West Coast people out there, I'm originally from L.A. (laughs) My birth certificate's from California. I was born in Santa Monica. And... I was born in that program. My mom came a year later to work with my dad and work alongside this program that was growing rapidly. And uh, they worked together, and I was uh, conceived and born in, in the program. And we were not with our parents. The program put together a nursery, and they didn't get to see me all the time. The nursery was raising me. Well, the program was effective as far as the first therapeutic community and ways to get people sober and well and get their lives transformed, but didn't have a spiritual component. And we know those things without the spiritual component won't last. They won't stick. They won't break through the bigger need in each of those lives, which is the change of a heart. And my dad quickly realized that something was going wrong within the program and it was becoming a cult. So in the middle of the night, he scooped me up and my mom put whatever money he could put together and flew us back to New York and left there, wanting to change his family's future and doing whatever he could. So I didn't grow up in a normal upbringing. That wasn't a normal beginning, and that's where it started. And they flew back to Brooklyn, New York, where my family's from. So for all of those who want to learn some lingo from New York, here it goes. How you doing? How you doing? You could practice that if you want to pick up. All right? And they came back there and they started a family and started a life for themselves and working hard to change his past, to change the way he grew up, that he wouldn't do that to the family that he was beginning. I'm the oldest of four. And he worked really hard to change that. And there was um, difficult times at the beginning because we weren't a, a uh, we were church going, but I found out, you find out all these things about your family as you get older, as you know. The secrets come to light. And I'm going through some paperwork, and I find out that I was baptized at five with my mom, which I thought was really cool. I thought I had a normal baptism like all the other little kids that get baptized, but it wasn't. They were um, buried by the justice of peace. My mother was Jewish. She followed my father's uh, uh, faith, and they went to the church. She got through catechism, and her and I got baptized together when I was five years old. And they began to pursue through marriage encounters something spiritual, and they wanted a change in their life. He wanted to change his past and make a new future. And they worked really hard at it, and it wasn't always easy. And my dad had a really difficult upbringing, and as a result of that difficult upbringing, some of that transferred into bringing us up, where I knew anger, I knew violence, I knew some of those things that 
Uh, I know it wasn't his intention to act out that way, but uh, he didn't know another way. He didn't have that understanding. And so without that upbringing that you would think there was, there was difficult, difficult moments in the family. But it wasn't until that praying grandmother who found the church was actually um, uh, through her prayers and through that transformation that my dad started to go. And one by one, we became born-again, spirit-filled Christians. And that was God's plan for his family. And that was my father's desire. He just didn't know it at the time. But the parents have the responsibility to love, nurture, and teach their children. And he was willing to fight for whatever it was to make that difference and see that transformation. And as a result of it, I stand here because of that fight and because the Lord intervened. And then the Lord also intervened in my life at a point because I rebelled and I didn't want what he had or I didn't want what they had because I didn't know the Lord in that way. I grew up in a Roman Catholic church. I went to Catholic school. And what I really got down was the fear of God, not the love of God. And I realized that I could never do enough right things in my life to please God. At least that's what I understood. And I wasn't worthy enough of heaven, so I rebelled. And in that rebellion, I strayed and strayed. And then started to get my act together, my life together in my late teens, I realized there had to be something more. And I started to get a new direction in my life. And in a new direction, I prayed a prayer. And I said, Lord, if you could ever use me the way these people have helped me, then use me. And I wasn't a born-again Christian yet, but I prayed a prayer, and it was sincere. And the Lord heard that prayer, and he said, I can use that. And I didn't have a plan on, as Bishop said, my, I rode a Harley Davidson to church my first service. So um, I'm a little bit different today. A little bit. And I, I, I came to that church not knowing what was going to happen, but desiring something more in my life. There had to be something greater. And what happened was I had a born-again, spirit-filled encounter with the living God. And that's imperative for everyone sitting here, and that's imperative for who we are and what we believe, and anyone that we encounter, that that is first and foremost, that they would encounter this love for Jesus. And that's what transforms a family, is a love for Jesus. And we encounter that love, and it transforms from the parents, and then, then that flows down to the children, but that's the nucleus. That's the core of what happens. And, and, and in that transformation for me, the journey began. And what I know as I set forth is that I was going to have a family that was going to know the love of the Lord and that we were going to live out that love together. And that if it was the church's job to equip the saints, it was my job to equip my family. Well, we have that job. We have that job to equip the saints. We have that job as parents to equip the family, to bring the kingdom of God into our homes and truly create what would be a new normal. Studies prove that the average child makes a decision if they'll stay in church by the age of 13. That means we only have 13 years to immerse them in the love and faith of Jesus Christ. 13. They make a decision whether they're ever going to come back or if they'll stay. So how important is it for us to pour all that we have and everything that we are into those children? If you know you only have that short period of time, and we have 13 years to, to, to build the faith into them, to build that foundation. And, and if we, we took hold of that, that would say that everything we're doing, what's important in the midst of what we're doing is that we're going to build them and equip them and raise them in the faith in that way over those 13 years. We'll sow the seed. The Father will bring forth the growth. Father Rob mentioned Psalm 127. I'm just going to read this again because I think we've got to get it in our hearts. Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. It's His work. Unless the Lord guards the city, 
The watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of warrior, so are the children in one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Like arrows in the hand of warriors. If we know we have these children in their 13 years, that means that they are an arrow. That they're built and equipped by the Lord and they have a purpose. And the Father's given us a bow. And what the Lord says is, take that arrow and aim and release. And see where it goes and see what it will do. But it's not just to rest in the quiver. It has a purpose and a destination. And we have to call that out of them. And tell them how important that is and point them. See, unless the Lord builds the home, unless He's the nucleus, unless all of that is centered around His love and who He is, we labor in vain who build it, unless He builds it. Unless the Lord builds the family, they labor in vain who build it. He builds the family. See, the Lord plans to build His church and subdue the earth His plan for that is through us, is through the family, one family at a time that he wants to build his kingdom. That's how he wants to build the church. I read this study and I thought it was appropriate because often we hear about the bad news and what's not working in families. As pastors, as leaders, we're constantly encountered with, uh, you know, the crisis. It would be great if those families walked in and they were walking with the Lord, they prayed, they were born again, they tithed. They did all those things that would be incredible, that we're praying for the perfect people. The Lord doesn't send the perfect people. He sends the broken people. And He sends them to us because He knows that we can give them something that they didn't have before. And He brings them into our lives. So every study that we read, every study that we see, really talks about what's not working, the bad news. Well, this doctor set out to figure out what was working. What was the difference? What was working in families? What were the common denominators that built strong families? And these are the six highest qualities that each strong family had in common. See, without realizing in the study that they put together, they proved these six qualities are actually the biblical plan for raising a strong family or the biblical qualities that had to exist, that we had to recognize that would be in these families, these six qualities. And the first quality was strong families expressed appreciation for one another. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let not corrupt who proceed out, let not corrupt, proceed out, corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, Comfort each other. Edify one another, just as you also are doing. A strong family, a strong Christian family, builds one another up. It does not tear each other down. And the importance of that, of expressing that appreciation, of building one another, words we say stick. As parents, things that we speak of our children stick. Words were spoken over me. Words like you'll never be smart enough. Boy, if they can only see me now, huh? (laughs) And it's not about the qualification. 
But you, you'll never amount to that. You're the kid with the most potential, which means that you're not amounting to anything because all you have is potential. Words that are spoken. How important is it for us to express that appreciation, that love for one another, and what we speak over each other. And if we realize what we speak over each other, that when we're building one another up, we're, what we're actually doing is imparting grace. We're imparting grace into one another's life, and in a family, how important it is as the parents that we impart that grace into one another, that we build one another up. Not that we have to spend so much time pointing out what we're doing wrong, but spending more time in how we build each other up, how we edify one another. See, when we edify one another and we're imparting that grace, that means that the Lord has something to do in the midst of that relationship. And we're calling out those gifts and we're calling out those greater things in one another in a family. So a strong family will express that appreciation for one another. Number two, strong families demonstrate the good communication patterns. When good communication breaks down, so does everything else. And how important it is that we communicate one another. James 1.19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We tell our kids, that's why the Lord gave you, you know, two ears and one mouth, is that you'd be a better listener, right? But are we quick to listen and slow to speak? Do we make that time to listen? To be good communicators, we have to be good listeners. Ephesians 4:31 through 32 says, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." We have to be excellent listeners to be great communicators, and all of this is done through the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's great to be a good communicator when everything's working out wonderful. It's hard to be a communicator when things are going the wrong way or things are going sideways or things are super dysfunctional. How do we communicate? How do we stay that course? How do we express that love in the midst of that? How do we continue to build each other up? How important it is as parents that we're listening to the kids and not pushing them off. How more important it is as a church that we're listening to kids that they might have a word of the Lord for the church. And have something to speak to us. But we don't create that time or that opportunity. And we're not realizing that that Lord calls them forth into our lives because He's speaking to them. He's speaking through their innocence. And how important it is that we're willing to listen. How important it is, again, that not only listen, but we're willing also to put them in that bow and point those children and release them. Number three, strong families spend time together. And I'm going to read another scripture and... Deuteronomy 6, 5-9, which we know from the Shema, the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you to you shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes, You shall write them on the doorstop of your house and on your gates. Now, if you didn't grow up with a Hasidic community, you're not used to seeing that. If you really want to see it in action, take a flight to Israel, and you'll see their commitment to prayer. You get on the plane, and you're on your way to Israel, and all of a sudden the hour is time for prayer, and the men stand up, and the phylactery goes on top of their head, and they begin to pray and begin to cry out to the Lord, and 
and, 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 they, and, and, and it's present. They don't care where they are or, or who's watching, but now's the time that they're going to meet the Lord. And there was something to that Shema of putting that law in their hearts, and they got hold of that. When we read that how important that law was or how important that they understood what that meant, that, that declaration of faith was in the hearts of the children. And it said, how often did they teach them which is about spending time with one another. He said, well, you, you teach them when you sit, when you walk by, and when you lie down. That's a lot of time. That's not just quickly imparting something. That, that's through the course of a day that we continue to impart that truth in their lives and how important it is for us that we spend time and impart that truth in our children and impart that truth in our grandchildren and in the next generation. And we have to sow that time in. We have to sow that time when we sit. We have to sow that time when we walk by. We have to sow that time when we dream, as we lie down, as we bring them to rest and the next day is going to start. It takes time. But there's no greater investment in the family than time. It will be the greatest investment we ever make. You know, I would read these studies about quantity versus quality of time in parenting. And let me tell you something. All the parenting books out there lie. And I say that because every situation is going to be different. And there is no handbook. You're winging it. Admit it. Admit it. I had no idea. When I brought my first child home from the hospital, I was terrified. Up to that point, I was the most selfish person you would ever meet. I thought life was about me. And all of a sudden, he gave me something to take care of. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I realized that taking care of this this child was going to take time and that I would have to invest that time. And I had to realize that also I didn't have all the answers. That I didn't have to pretend I knew exactly how that would be. That it wasn't in a book somewhere for all those answers, but the Lord had the answers. And if I put the Lord first in my family, he would help me figure the rest out. So by doing that and spending that time and and, and investing that time in the family, there's fruit as a result that will happen to that. And there's quantity and quality, and you know what? Both are important. You could have a quantity of time, meaning you're around the house all the time, but you're not investing any quality. You could have little moments of quality of time, but sometimes children need more quantity. And there's a heavenly balance in that and what we impart in them in the things of God and in the things that we do. And I think part of imparting those things in our children or in that time is what we do and how we display it in our own lives. My family knows that there's a place where Dad prays and they encounter every time they walk past that, that's a place that's set apart where prayer is happening. They know that we take time to pray. They know that we, we, what our lives are about, and that, that's invested in the family, and there's, they, they understand what that looks like. And sometimes that quality of time is just practicing the things of God within our homes and imparting that in our children, not just putting word or, or, or uh, things that we teach them, but also in that action of what we show them. But both are important. If we look at Jesus, we see that he spent time with his disciples. He prayed with them. He ate with them. They slept in the same home that they would stay at, and they served together. And he imparted in them throughout each of those times the things of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God was like. When he sent his disciples into the villages, he said to them, Go, and when you go into the village, stay. My peace be with you. And when they receive my peace, it will stay with you. If they reject it, it will come back to you. But what he knew was that those who were receiving 
that the Lord was coming, that peace would rest, that shalom peace would rest on the family. And what the Lord says, I don't want you to get confused and move from place to place. I want you to stay in one place and speak of the things, the kingdom of God. And what did they do when they went there? Healing occurred, they drove out demons, and the hand of God moved as they stayed in one place. Why? Because they spent time with them. They didn't go from place to place. It's the early seed of the church working one family at a time as the Lord sent them out and as they spent time with them. Number four, strong families are committed to family. Isn't that funny? How important is we make that commitment? 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Families take care of family. We're committed to one another. The family's model of commitment to one another starts with the commitment of the husband and wife first. When the husband and wife take on the sacrament of holy matrimony, the two become one flesh with Christ. And when the husband and wife model love and sacrifice and service, then the children have the greatest opportunity to follow that model. Not to say they're not going to rebel, not to say that they're not going to have to figure out that path along with the Lord, but if we're creating a healthier model, they have a greater chance of walking that out. But you also have both models. I didn't have the traditional model. What I've set out to do is give my children the best model possible. And the best way to give them the best model is for me to be as honest as possible, as truthful as possible, as transparent as possible. When I'm a dad and I'm blowing it, I admit it. When I've overstretched, I repent. But I give them that model that they would understand. And, and I know that if we were doing it, maybe they could catch hold of it. That they would experience that. And that we would sustain that model, Lorianne and myself. That we would be that, that sacrament of holy matrimony. And that we would be that symbol to our children. That we took out a word divorce and said that we would never use that word in our relationship. That it would never come in the midst of an argument and a fight. And we're two very strong-headed firstborn children. But that was never, never going to be a word that we would use, but that we would make that commitment for the rest of our lives together. And that we would model the best we can of who Christ was in the midst of that relationship. This picture of the Trinity, Christ in the center. How important that is. But we're committed to family Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, we've made time and we've made that commitment to family. Number five, a strong families have strong Christian values. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. For families to have strong Christian values, every member of the family must be clothed in Christ. How important that is. How important it is, because you're not going to have unity if they're not. And I know, I understand unevenly yoked and not yoked and how difficult it is. And as a pastor, I know what it's like when the couples come in and they're already living together. And the couples come in and they already have a child. And it's starting on a harder foot. And now we're shocked when they come in and they're pure. And they've grown up in the church. Like, I don't want to get too excited about this. Lord Jesus, there's hope. And I believe there's hope in the next generation. I believe they're getting hold of it. I believe they see our mistakes or they see what's happened. I believe they see where we're willing to invest and say that you're the future, you're the hope, that they get hold of that. And they see that the things of the world are going to pass away. 
and that they could walk out something unique. So they're creating their own new normal by understanding that. And our young adults are getting hold of that and starting on the right foot, knowing that being pure before the Lord and entering a a relationship, a covenant of marriage, the best gift you can give your husband or wife is that purity. And they're understanding that. And God's going to bless that abundantly. And those who've made the mistake, God will still redeem it. He's a God of redemption. Amen? And He'll bring that redemption. But how much greater is it to start on that foot? But He's going to send both and we're going to have both. We're going to have the families that come in that are broken and shattered and and have been through uh, every circumstance that's horrific that you can think of. But then we have in the midst of that watching the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. The testimony of what He's doing in their lives. Being or going forth into the, those who would hear that truth and sharing that truth with others. And that's taking place at the same time we're building up this next generation that has an opportunity to build a strong family in the faith and know how important that is. To have the values of the faith, to be clothed in Christ, to be walking out that relationship. When I do pre-cainer and they come in, I just let them know, listen, it's not going to work if you both aren't walking with the Lord. It's just not. July 23rd, I'll be married 25 years in two weeks. I'm too young to be married 25 years. But 25 years. And, and what I can tell you is that, that part of that commitment to one another, part of that journey to one another, has only succeeded because Jesus was the center of that relationship. That's it. Because once again, there's not a great manual. I could read the scriptures. I could read great books that will give me insight and understanding. But it comes down to unless the Lord will build the house, unless he's the center, unless he's in the middle of that, unless prayer is happening with us together in prayer, everything is birthed out of that prayer and that relationship and that love for one another. Unless his core values, those values are in our lives and we're living out those values. Otherwise, I'm building the house on straw or sand. And how important that is, families to get hold of that and build that strong value of who Christ is in our life. See, the heart of the Father is for us to have unity with Him and unity in one another. And if we don't have unity in the family, how are we going to have unity in the church? Both have to come together. And how you get to unity is through disunity most of the time. Is working those things out, not giving up, not quitting, but believing that He will bring that unity. That the Holy Spirit wants to move in our lives and unite us in the midst of our weakness and our struggles that we can overcome because those values are, are built in us. That our conviction of faith gives the family a purpose. That conviction of family, that conviction of faith not only gives the family purpose, but as a result of giving it purpose, it also strengthens it at the same time. How important it is to build on those values. Number six, strong families have the ability to deal with crisis in a positive manner. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. We love quoting that, pastors, don't we, when things aren't going great. Don't worry. All things work together for the good of those. But how important it is that we deal with a circumstance in our life, what happens in the middle of crisis. And if you've lived or breathed long enough, you know that you're going to have crisis in your life. Life is going to come at you no matter what you do. The enemy has a plan for your life as well. And we go astray and and things happen and life comes and circumstances come and there's going to be a response of how we deal with it at that 
point, and I'm talking about building strong families, and every one of these points can also be a way that we can look at our church and build strong churches. And James 1, 2-4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When's the last time you've counted a trial as joy? Verse 3 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the Lord's going to work patience out through my trials? Yup. And how I handle them. And how I walk through them. And those circumstances in family. How I'm going to lead as the spiritual head of my home when, when that circumstance, that crisis arises. How am I going to lead that forward? How am I going to bring that stability of the Lord into their lives in those moments? We look at those trials and we look at patience. I just want to read this. Romans 5, 1 through 5. It says, They have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access to faith and to grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and glory of God. And not only that, but we also, ready? Glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produces what, church? Perseverance. And perseverance produces what? Character. And character, hope. Now hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us or given to us. That there's going to be something in the middle of that crisis and how we handle it, how we deal with that circumstance in a positive manner, how the Lord would guide us through that circumstance as a family because it's either that circumstance that could unite us or it can divide us. And if we're going to glory in our tribulation knowing that Jesus is doing something in the midst of our family through a hard time, that He's going to produce a perseverance through that and build something greater in our family as a result of it. And the greater thing that He's going to produce in us is character. What character? Christ-like character. That we'll get through that because we'll put on Christ. We know who Christ is. That He's the hope in the midst of the crisis. He's the hope in the midst of that circumstance. See, crisis always reveals the true character. And the true character of a family is what they do when no one is watching. How we act, how we respond. There's a quote from John Maxwell that says, Talent is a gift, but character is a choice. We choose the character that we want to be, or our character, or how we're going to respond in the midst of a circumstance or trial in our lives. As pastors, we're going to have trial after trial and circumstance in our churches. As mothers and fathers, you're going to have trials and you're going to have circumstances. And you know what? Our character is not always going to be Christ-like. Amen? Unless you're holier than I am, maybe just for me. Amen. But it's not. But how... What a greater teaching opportunity I can have is saying, I blew it. I missed it. That that wasn't Christ-like. Or I didn't learn something in the midst of that. And, and I, didn't, I didn't let him teach me that patience through that so he could build my character. That I would count this time as a tribulation, as joy, because he's doing something in my weakness that I have no control over. That he's imparting something in my life. So who we are and how we behave outside of church is so important. That's where the true character is discerned and that we know. So we must determine, unless the Lord builds it, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the family, we labor in vain. 
and the families around us that are confused and trying to do it from a world standard or a world's perspective are building it in vain. And they're trying to create new ways to understand family. And somehow that we're going to get hold of their understanding of family, but the Lord gave us family, and He gave us what that looks like. And what we have to do is let Him build it. What we have to do as brothers and sisters in the Lord is make your house His kingdom and make the king the ruler of your home. Resolve to be committed to leading and raising your family in the way and the love of Christ. Bring the kingdom of God into your homes. We'll always start by first inviting the king. There are four things every Christian home needs, and I'll end on this, to build a firm foundation. And it's quite simple and it's quite practical. If we look at the things that Jesus did and we look at that model, we can see the things that he built. The things that he did to build a firm foundation. Things that we need to build a firm foundation. If you first look, it's love. Where did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught them about love. He taught them about the kingdom and the love of the Father. He showed them that love, not just by word, but by action. He brought that love. He showed them redemption. He showed them salvation. He showed them the love of the Father and he showed healing. But first and foremost, he loved them and he brought that love. In the midst of that love, then he taught them about prayer and what prayer would look like. And how important everything in life will flow out of that prayer. To times where he would gather them together and pray, but then he would go by himself to be one with the Father. How important love was and how important prayer was. The third thing he taught them was about fellowship. And how important fellowship is. And that we as brothers and sisters, we in our homes, need to put fellowship back in. We become too busy, too distracted, too swayed by the things around us, and we've not made time for fellowship. I think of it this way. I don't know about you, but I've always you know, tried to picture what it was like when Jesus gathered his disciples, and he created his new family. And within that family, they gathered around a fire at evening, and they ate together, and they broke bread, and he revealed the things of the kingdom of God, and he taught them. And they began to understand things differently, and his teaching was like no other teaching. But I don't think it was all serious. I think there's times in the midst of that fellowship that they told jokes. I think Peter told jokes about fish he caught. He's like, I caught a fish that was this big. Like, no, Peter, it was like this big. No, I remember the fish was like this big. They were fishermen. They told jokes. They had a good sense of humor. I think Jesus laughed. I think he knew the joy was his strength, and that joy was in him. And I think that as they gathered in fellowship, there was a time of laughter. There's a time of sowing in together. So too, as a family, do we make that time for fellowship to sow into one another? Is there something as simple as once a week you gather as a family for time of prayer, for time of fellowship? That we're making a point to stop with all the things around us that are going on and say this is a time that we come together. The Lord's going to work in the midst of that time, in the midst of that fellowship. We know when we gather for the Eucharist, we're gathering in fellowship. And that's it, this point of gathering as we come together and how important that is in the Eucharist that we have that fellowship and it brings unity. So too that fellowship in family brings unity as we invest that time with one another. The fourth thing is this, is service. Service that we should be modeling what the faith is, not just talking about what the faith is. That, that we're teaching our children and we're teaching those around us how important it is to be the hands and feet of Christ and where he'll send us. And how important it is as a family that we take on things to do those very things that he's called us to do. And for some of us, maybe within the church, your family, one's the 
keyboard player, one's the guitar player, and that's good, and they're learning service. But that we're modeling what that looks like, that we're modeling what Jesus did and what he sent his disciples to do. That all those things are flowing and working together. Why? Because the common thing is that love, the love that he has for us, the love that we have for one another. And if we model those things, if we teach our children, if we take those arrows and we impart in those arrows those very things and build them up that they would have that character of Christ and then release them to go and give them the right foot to start on or that understanding, calling out that faith. We've sown the seeds. We know what the Lord can do. We know what the Lord wants to do. And we know that the Lord will fulfill what He's begun in their lives. But we have to believe that His purpose and His plans will be greater for family. And I believe it doesn't take millions of families to change the culture. I think it starts with one. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.